in Hebrews chapter 8. We're actually going to cover the whole chapter tonight. I know that's a shock. Last week we covered a lot of verses, and this week we're actually going to cover a lot of verses. But this section of Hebrews actually is not one of these ones that you can break down too, too much, because he's continuing a point that he has been carrying on. So I'm going to read the section to you, and then we're going to begin to take a look at it. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. The Hebrew writer says, The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, or Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now we're going to try to jump into this. Now just in the first couple of verses, it's like just kind of skim over what he's dealing with in, in this. Is, is the, Hebrew, the Hebrew writer's point of, of uh, or his point is this. Jesus is the best high priest. I mean, I think we've kind of, we've heard that over the last few weeks of our study, have we not? But just real quickly as a summation of what we're going to look at in this chapter, he's the best high priest, high priest because he's sitting in God's presence at his right hand. He serves as high priest in the true heavenly sanctuary, not the copy which is man-made. And he's the mediator of a new and eternal covenant, not an old covenant that is obsolete, aging, and will soon disappear. I'm going to read those three things to you again. There's three main reasons why Jesus is the best high priest. And it is because he's now sitting in God's presence himself at his right hand. He serves as high priest in the true heavenly sanctuary, not the copy which is man-made. And he's the mediator of a new and eternal covenant, not an old covenant that is obsolete, aging, and will soon disappear. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at those things that we've just looked at here in, in, the, in the introduction. And that's what this chapter is about. So I'm going to ask you a question. All right? It says in chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 1, go to chapter 5 of Hebrews. Verse 1. It says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay? Now, here in chapter 8, verse 3, it says, 
Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. What did Jesus offer? If the priests were to offer gifts and sacrifices, what did he offer? Himself. Good for you. Let me show you a couple places where it says that. Chapter 7, we've already seen it in verse 27. It says there in chapter 7, verse 27, Unlike the other high priest, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Look at chapter 9. Jump over to chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It says that the high priest would offer gifts and sacrifices. Jesus offered Himself. He's the gift. He was the sacrifice. He did make uh, an offering, and it was Himself. And so let's move on now to cover a look at what verse number 4 talks about here. It says here in, in verse 4 that the Hebrew writer says that if Jesus were an earthly priest, He would not be qualified... To be a priest. Why? Now again, some of you aren't used to me asking you these questions so early in the study, but I'm actually, because we're recapping, I want to see if you're with me still. So far you got an A. If he was an earthly priest only, why would he not be qualified according to... He's not a Levite. Remember? The law said that the priest had to be from the tribe of Levi. He's not a Levite. What else? There's another reason. It's in from what we've been looking at. I'm sorry? Well, not, not that he doesn't offer sacrifices. Other than himself, no. The, the, it's tied to the Levite thing. Remember in the study, we've been looking at the fact that it's no big deal that Jesus is not a Levite because he's not from the order of Levi. What priestly line is he from? He's from the priestly line of Melchizedek. What is one of the, the most distinguishing factor about Melchizedek that Jesus meets? Remember? Not a Levite, but he also is king and priest and is a priest forever. If he were just a man, he couldn't fulfill that aspect. He couldn't be the forever priest because what happens to us people, humans? We die. And so what the Hebrew writer is saying here in verse 4 is, is if he were just an earthly king, I mean an earthly priest, Jesus wouldn't be qualified because he's not a Levite. And if he were just an earthly priest... He wouldn't be a priest in the order of Melchizedek to be able to be priest forever. Jesus is the high priest, and he's and as we've already seen in our study, he's not of the Levite lineage, and that's no no big no skin off our back because the Melchizedek priesthood preceded the Levite priesthood, and it also supersedes it when God made His oath after the Levitical priesthood that Jesus was going to be in the order of Melchizedek. And as we've already done in our study, Jesus is is fine to be our high priest because. He's not just man. He was a man, but he was also God. And by, because of that, he's able to be the high priest. All right? Now, let's move on a little bit and talk a bit about the temple, uh, or the tabernacle. It says the earthly tabernacle or temple was just a copy or a shadow of the true tabernacle or the temple in heaven. All right? Now, we're going to get into a couple of things that I haven't really seen before in this study. And this is one of the things, and I'll get to it in just a second. But before we do, let's just take a look at Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Here in Revelation, we have the revelation of John, if you will, where God, Jesus himself shows up while John's on the Isle of Patmos. And he reveals himself to him, and he takes John into heaven to see what's to come. He has the message for the churches at that time, but he also gives him a glimpse of what's going to be happening in the, in the end times. 
In Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he's actually in the throne room of God and he sees the presence of God. And he says in chapter 8 of Revelation, verse 1, When he opened the seventh seal, Jesus is the one opening the seals, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And I saw another angel who had a golden censer. He came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What I want to pull out from this passage is this. John is able to see the throne room of God, the presence of God, where he is seated. And in front of him is what? According to what piece of furniture is here, or apparatus? The golden altar. Let's try again. The golden altar. Alright? And it has to do with incense, Right? Now, keep that in mind, and we're going to come back to Revelation in just a second. Go with me to Exodus chapter 30. Moses was on the mountain, as you know, when they were taken out of Egypt and brought into the wilderness. Moses went up on the mountain and he met with God. And God gave him instructions on building this tabernacle, the moving temple, if you will, where God was going to dwell. And the instructions were explicit. Exodus chapter 30. We look at verses 1 through 10. I'm only going to just give you a glimpse of some of the instructions. But in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, God says to Moses, Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long, and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. Its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top of all the sides and the horns with pure gold, and make a gold, and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding on the two opposite sides to hold the poles to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. Here we see that he was told to have them make this altar, and it was to have horns on it, and it was to be covered in gold, and it was to be set right before the Ark of the Testimony. Why? God, remember, in the tabernacle, you have the tabernacle set up, and then within it you had the holy place, And we're going to get to that later in our study when the Hebrew writer starts talking about all that. So we're not going to break it down too much now. And then you had the most holy place where God dwelt. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And at the top of the Ark were those cherubim with their wings facing forward and God dwelt. Remember, God's everywhere. He doesn't just dwell in one place. But that was a place that He manifest His presence to remind them that God was with them. But there was to be an altar of incense right in front of it so that they would... Well... It was a copy or a shadow of what? The one in heaven. 
The one in heaven, and so we're going to take a look at it and see it some more. We saw there in John, in, in, in Revelation chapter 8, where John is up there in heaven and he sees the actual throne of God, where God Himself is actually sitting. And in front of that altar was what? A golden altar of incense put right in front of the throne of God, where God dwells, just like the picture of was in the tabernacle, or the shadow was. And what I want you to understand is, and this is what the Hebrew writer is saying is, is as impressive and holy and awesome as was the place of God on the earth in this tabernacle, which was made out of tent material for a while, and then the temple when they lived there in the city of Jerusalem, and the priests would perform their duties, and as holy as it was and incredible as it was, that's just a copy, a shadow of the real one. And Jesus didn't do His work in the temporary one, The one that was just a copy, Jesus did His work as high priest in the actual throne room, tabernacle, presence of God. Go back to Revelation. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 13. It says, The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from what? The horns of what? Of the golden altar that is before God. Remember back in Exodus chapter 30, we just read that they were to make this altar and it was to have horns. It was a copy of the one in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, just flip over to Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 5. I'm just going to read just a section. We're not going to break it down. We're going to be studying it later, so I won't break it down tonight. It says, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. And and so I just want you to see, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But the Hebrew writer is just reminding them of what the temple was or is. Because there actually is some debate. Most people think that when this was written, chances are the the, um, city of Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. And so... In this time period, there probably still was the temple temple with all this stuff going on. And I'm just going to throw something out to you. I, I like to think about things. I like to read the scriptures and then wonder about some things. And you, what happened in the temple, the moment Jesus was crucified and he died and he gave up his spirit and he went to be with the Father in the presence of God, what happened at that moment? The veil, that curtain between people and the holy place of God was torn from the top to the bottom. God was symbolically saying the way to God is now opened up through Jesus Christ. You don't have to ask some man to talk to him on your behalf. Unfortunately, there are some some churches that teach people that they can pray to somebody else to have them talk to God. Folks, the way has been opened through Jesus and His body and His sacrifice. We can go straight into the presence of God. But it's interesting to me. The temple continued to exist for years, at least 40, until AD 70 when it was destroyed. And I wonder, and to be honest with you, I've searched, I've researched, I can't find anything that writes about it. But I wonder if they put the temple, the veil, back. I wonder if they didn't at least stitch it up. Or quickly make a new one. Like we can't go in there. But wouldn't that cut our access to God? 
Well, it, as you know, it won't change what Jesus did, but here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Think of how many people in the world today, with the message of salvation being right here, that it has been opened through Jesus Christ, and they say, no, let's put it back, I'll get there myself. They did not acknowledge that He was the Messiah. But in it, it's, it's interesting. I've dug, I've researched, I've studied. I can't find anybody write anything about what happened to the veil after that. But they must have put it back. Why? 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 It was their tradition. It was their tradition. They can't go into the... You couldn't... You couldn't have, they were so afraid. Remember, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go in and only with a lot of blood? You know? They, what's that? And a rope around his ankle in case God struck him dead, they could drag him out. <laughs> Makes you wonder too, if there were any Jews in the temple at the time when the veil was torn, they suddenly could see the ark and they did not die. Right. Yeah, again. Well, you wouldn't die unless you touched it. You wouldn't die unless you touched it. Because it was it was seen it was seen a bunch. But Bill made up a good point. Folks, you don't when you still try to serve God through legalism, you do the same thing. You put the veil back. Yeah. You think that you have to be Doing the right things in order for God to be liking you or be righteous in His eyes. Because of Christ, we are righteous. We have men made righteous. Please don't hear the preacher when they say, well, God looks at you through Jesus. It's more than that. It's not that you're still the same you and God looks at you through Jesus. You are in Christ. He is in you. You are righteous. You are a new creation. You're not the same old you that God sees differently now because of Jesus and you hope He doesn't move. You... And I put the veil back sometimes when we think we have to do right things in order to be pleasing to God. But here's the thing that I had never seen before. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Have any of you ever, out of curiosity, gone and looked at those instructions in Exodus of how they were to build the tabernacle and read them and then tried to design it yourself just by following the instructions? Has anybody, has anybody tried that? Only two of us? Have you tried it, Mark? It's crazy. Because if you try to read the instructions, and they're very detailed. I don't know if the wall's supposed to go this way or that way. And, and I've many times thought, how in the world could they build this thing? The instructions are very specific, yet not so specific that I know I'm turning left or right or up or down. And then something jumped out at me as I was studying for this, for this study. Look at what it says here. He was told there in uh, verse 5, They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern, what? Shown you on the mountain. And I started to do some research, and I started to realize from what this word means and other things, and I'm going to show you a couple things in Exodus. Moses wasn't just given the written instructions as to how to build it. Moses got to see either the actual throne room of God, as John did in the, on the Isle of Patmos many years later, or Ezekiel got to see it. If you want to go double-check me later on, you go read Ezekiel chapter 1 and read the whole chapter. Ezekiel was taken into the presence of God. He saw the same thing John saw. If you want to double-check me, you can go to Isaiah chapter 6 and you can see that Isaiah was taken into the presence of God and he saw the same thing that John and Ezekiel saw. And it lines up. It's amazing how it lines up. There's a chance that Moses, while he was on the mountain, as Paul would say, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, 
was either taken to see, he could see the presence of God, and he knows what the temple looks like, or he was shown a copy or a pattern, as some translations say. And if someone had actually given you a scale model and then given you those written instructions, you could tell people how to build it because as you're reading the instructions, you already know what it looks like. And it had never, I had never seen it until I did this study that he was shown what it looked like. He wasn't just given written instructions. He was shown. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. Now... I can't tell you whether he saw the real thing or, or a copy or, or, or a model, if you will. Can't answer that question. But he definitely saw what it looked like. Exodus chapter 25. I have a picture. What's that? I have a you have a picture. That's good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not a Polaroid, but, but, but it's, it's, it's nice. Look at, look at verse 40. It says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And this is what the Hebrew writer is quoting from. But go back to verse 9 of chapter 25. And I want from the different translations what some of your translations say. Because here in the NIV, it's okay. I'm not real loving the, the way they translate this word. But in chapter 25, verse 9 in the NIV, it says this. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. What do some of your other translations say? Okay, and I am going to show you. According to all that I show thee. And according to all that I show thee. Okay, that's, that sounds a little bit more present. It's happening then. Anybody else? Going to show you. According to all that I show you. According to all that I show you. See, you see how some of them, this is, the, the, the word is kind of hard to translate. Some translations read it as uh, that I'm showing you. Or I show you now. Others are saying that I'm going to show you. Whether, whichever way it is, it appears that somehow during this time is when he got to see in the middle of chapter 25. Because by the end of chapter 25, it's very clear that he says, make sure you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you. So it's during chapter 25 somewhere that he gets a glimpse of what it looks like. Yes, sir? Uh, you know, a few years ago, King uh, Challenge of what we were yes. out The Holy Land experience has a great one as well. If you've not been to the... Really? I hadn't seen the one at Tang Teen Challenge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just a section of it. They built the whole thing? Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Of the ark and everything there. Mm-hmm. Think, think about what we're doing right now. We're sitting here talking about one that Teen Challenge made that was according to the specifications and how awesome it was. And it's the copy. It's not even the temple, which was unbelievably beautiful. It's the copy of the copy of the copy. You know? Folks, one day we are going to be able to be in the presence of God I believe that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation represents the church. And I believe that we are going to be there in his presence around the throne, seeing that altar of incense, seeing all this stuff. That's why Jesus is the far greater high priest. He's actually sitting in the right hand of the Father in his presence. Those guys were only one 
the high priest, was allowed to go into the presence of God. And only once a year, Jesus is sitting in His presence 365 days a year, if there's such a thing as time in heaven. And He's, on, he's interceding on our behalf. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Exactly, exactly. As, 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 and that's what the Hebrew writer, remember, the Hebrew writer is writing to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. And he's pretty much laying it. Have you noticed he's pretty much winning his case? How stupid it is to even think about going back? But again, keep in mind, we do the same thing when we still try to serve God under law and not in grace. We do the same thing. Go ahead. Why is there now no sanctuary anywhere and no sacrifices? Why is there, there none? Well, what, lots of reasons. Keep, keep in mind, the Jewish people as a whole were hardened and they were scattered, and so there, there was no place. It was destroyed in AD 70. And even though they've been brought back into the land and have been in the land since 1948, they haven't rebuilt it because of the fact that they, even though God is bringing them back, they haven't had the breath of life breathed back into them. They're, as a nation, they're really not worshipers of God. As a nation, the nation of Israel right now, they're just proud of being Israelites and Zion. But they're not worshipers of God. Now, there are some very devout ones that are striving to get that back up, but the nation as a whole is not for it. At some point, I lean toward either right before the tribulation or during the first part of the tribulation, there's going to be something that happens that allows them and causes them to rebuild the temple because the Antichrist will step into the temple at the midpoint and all. But right now, they're, they're not saying we're back in the land because of God. So without the temple, there's no sanctuary. Right. The temple is the sanctuary and all. Now, this is another whole discussion for another time, but we don't even know if the Ark of the Covenant even exists anymore. There are many people that think it still does, and I kind of lean in that direction that it does. You don't ask me where it is, I don't know. And if there's a human, they ain't telling. You know, if there's a human that knows, they're not telling. But at the same time, it could exist and it could appear. And it could go back into that new temple. We'll see how that all works. But you have to realize, keep in mind Ezekiel 37. We always like to talk about Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the Gog and Magog War. In Ezekiel 37, we have the Valley of Dry Bones and how God had Ezekiel prophesy to a whole valley of dead bones. And, 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 and amazingly, you can even picture some of the pictures you've seen from the Holocaust of all the Jews who were scattered and, and just piled up and their bodies were rotted in their bones. And Ezekiel's told to prophesy to these bones. But actually, before that, God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel very wisely says, only you know. And God says prophesy to him. So he starts preaching to those bones. And all of a sudden they start coming back together. And that's where we learned our song, the knee bone connected to the hip bone and so on. That comes from that passage in Ezekiel 37. And the bones come back together and then the tendons and muscles and flesh comes back on the bones. But there was no life in them. And then God tells Ezekiel to prophesy and God breathed life into them. And I believe the nation of Israel, which had been scattered and dead in the eyes of man has been regathered and the bones are coming back together and they are a nation again, but they don't have the breath of God in them yet. And that I think is going to happen at the very end of the tribulation period when God puts His Spirit in them. And actually, if we can get there, we're going to talk about that tonight. So, let's move on now to verse 6. I love how this he makes this transition. He says, But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which He is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Alright, here the Hebrew writer begins to look at how Jesus is also the mediator of a new and better covenant. 
This is the first time he starts talking about the covenants here in the book of Hebrews. He's been talking about the priesthood and a whole lot of other stuff. Now he's taking this argument. He says also there was an old covenant and Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And the new covenant is even better than the old covenant. Just like this kind of Melchizedek priesthood is better than Levitical priesthood. The new covenant is way better and it's founded on better promises. Now he says first there must have been something wrong with the old covenant. says that there in verse 7. Or else there would have been no need for a new one. What was wrong with the old covenant? Any ideas? It couldn't save us. Remember we looked at it last week? It was never intended to make us right before God. What was its purpose? To show us that we couldn't keep it and to drive us to Christ. It was to be the schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus. But I want you to turn to me to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. There's another reason why the law was unable... Well, why it was no good. Romans chapter 8, look at verses 3 and 4. It said, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by, translation here in NIV, which I don't like, says sinful nature. The better translation is the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why was the law no good? Because it was weakened because of our flesh. Now, I'm going to clarify that in just a little bit, so stick with me. Because once you start to really understand what this is just saying here, it's going to help you a ton to understand where he's going next. So I'm just going to just stop that for right now. All right? Just keep in mind, as we saw last week, it was never intended or ever able to make men right before God. It is an inherently, as he says later on, obsolete aging and to disappear. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 13. But he says the promises of the new covenant were better. So we now then say, what are these better promises? What are these, what are these better promises of the new covenant? Any idea? By the way, it's real easy. It's the next verse. Look at what he says. He just says it was founded on better promises. It says in verse 7, for there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant. No place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people, and He said, and then He quotes from Jeremiah. And you're going to find in Jeremiah, where we're going to go and look, you're going to find the better promises are in that promise in Jeremiah. And you're actually going to see the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament many, many times. Now what I'm going to do is just read to you a section from this commentary that I have by a theologian named F.F. Bruce. I'm just going to read a small section to you. He says, here then are the better promises on which the new covenant is established. A, he says, I will put my law in their minds. B, they will all know me. C, I will remember their sins no more. We're going to see all this in a sec. The covenant at Sinai involved divine promises, but not promises like these. Remember, the covenant at Sinai, that's the old covenant through Moses. All right? But not promises like these. The fulfillment of such promises gives a new meaning to the ancient covenant words, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It has indeed been maintained more than once that the covenant concept, with its suggestion of a contractual obligation, is inadequate to convey the religious relationship subsisting between God and His people. This, however, is to concentrate on the form to the exclusion of the substance. It is true, no doubt, that, thus, that as far as its form is concerned, the early biblical covenant has close affinities with the treaties which bound vassal states and to their imperial overlords in the second millennium B.C. 
but it makes all the difference in the world to the substance of the covenant when it is God who takes the initiative in His grace, bestowing His promises freely on those whom He has called to be His people and binding them to Himself with bands of love. When analogies are drawn from human life to illustrate God's covenant with His people, it is from the family circle and not from the field of internal politics that they're drawn. From relation between husband and wife or that between a father and his children. Now, for those of you that didn't quite grasp that, because I know it's hard to not read it yourself, but to have somebody read it to you. What he's saying is this. He says, yes, in the old covenant it had a picture of a, of a, of a law document set up. If you do this, then I'll do that. But he said to just focus on that aspect of the covenant is to miss what God was doing even in the Old Old Covenant and definitely clarified in the New Covenant. And he said, if you miss the substance of the covenant because of looking at it as a legal document, you're going to miss what God was doing. And so we're going to be heading now in the rest of our study tonight, in the time we have left, to show you the substance of the Old Covenant that was unable to be met because of us. And the substance, which is the same, of the new covenant, which God is going to do Himself. And that's what I want you to see. There's such a cool thing. So just stick with me here, and it'll begin to make sense. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to read to you verses 33 and 34. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 31. I can't skip that either. This is too good. Chapter 31, verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, some of you might be reading that and say, wait a minute, what's that got to do with us? He said that he's going to make this covenant in the last times with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In verse 33, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. Well, the answer to that question is, yes, you're right. This is a covenant that is promised to the nation of Israel. They will receive this promised covenant just like you and I have. But in this time period of the church, we are experiencing by God's grace, what was promised to the nation of Israel. And if you want to level, later on go look at that, just read the whole chapter of Romans chapter 11, where Paul said that God is not done with Israel. They've experienced the hardening in part till the full number of Gentiles has come in. We have been grafted in by God's grace for a time period, but when the full number of Gentiles has come in, God's going to finish what He started with Israel, and they're going to come to faith, and all the Israel that's left at that time will be saved. But he also makes this very interesting statement in that chapter. He says that God is using the Gentiles to make Israel what? Jealous. Envious. We, and that's why the Hebrew writer is speaking to Christians, he's saying, you are actually experiencing the new covenant that God promised to the nation of Israel a while back. 
Christians, we who are Gentiles and not Jews, but even though there, there are Jews who are in the part of the church, we who are in the church are experiencing the new covenant of God's grace. But who was it planned for? Israel. It was planned for Israel, folks. And God is going to finish what He started with Israel. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. It's a matter of it is definitely a matter of... It's a hard issue, and that's where we're going to end up tonight. So hang on to that. Because there's a, the substance of the covenant, which we're going to get to, has been there all along. The old covenant had the same substance. The new covenant has the same substance. But there was one problem with the old covenant, and that problem has been solved by the new covenant, and that's going to become clear in just a little bit. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. I want you to see that... Jeremiah wasn't the only one that promised this new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. In some of your Bibles that have the headings, you'll see in above, above verse 16, it says the promised return of Israel. Uh, it says in verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart. And put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Has that happened to Israel yet? No. But it's going to. It's at the end of the tribulation period. But if we are partakers of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, do these promises apply to us? Then look again at what he just said he would do. He says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. Now, I'm going to just throw you a curveball. How come Christians don't experience this new heart, this desire to follow God? Any ideas? We believe Satan lies. We still live in the flesh. Go ahead, Bill. Ignorance. Ignorance. How do we activate what God has given us in the new covenant? By faith. By believing it. But you know the word. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. Folks, what I want you to understand is, if you still sit there thinking, well, man, I need to do a better job, or I, you know, I need to pray more, or I need to do this, if you still think it's on you, you've been listening to bad preaching. Because God has promised that those of us who are in the new covenant, He will give us His Spirit. He will give us a new heart. He will do this work in us. But what we must do is daily believe the promises of God, yield ourselves in faith, and say, God, thank You that I have a new heart. Thank You that I have the desire within me to serve You. My flesh doesn't want to. That's still decaying, and that's going to go by the wayside. But thank You that You have said that You will do it, and I believe it. That's why Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will, or to give you the desire, and to act according to His good purpose. This thing that we sit there and we look and we say, oh, won't that be neat when all of a sudden Israel starts obeying God by His control? You've got that now! But you don't believe it. And you don't activate it daily by faith. How did you get saved? You believed that what God said was true. You asked Him to do it. You believed that He did and you walked out of that encounter believing that it saved you. Colossians 2 verse 6 says this, In the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. Daily, I believe, God, that You've given me a new heart. I'm not the same old me. 
You don't just, I'm not the same me that you see through Jesus. I am in Christ. He is in me. Jesus says, in that day you'll realize that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. And Father, He prayed in John 17, may they be one just as you and I are one. And we've been saying that that means we all get along. No, Jesus says, remember He was asked and He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, Father, I want them to have the same relationship with you that I do. I pray that they would be one just as you and I are one. I and them and you and me. Folks, what I want you to understand is this awesome new covenant that Jerusalem and Israel is going to experience in days to come is yours and mine now. But it only is activated by faith. You need to daily understand your new creation. Let me show you one more. Go to Ezekiel 36. Y'all got me preaching. Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 22 through 27. Look closely at these promises. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. This isn't talking about coming back from some of their captivities. This is the last days and what's happening now. And I will take you, verse 24, out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, listen, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Just like you said, Jesus, I believe you can save me. Do it. You need to pray daily. Jesus, I believe you can live through me. Do it. And you walked out of that encounter not hoping you were saved, but knowing you were saved, believing that God was going to save you. In the same way, when you say, Lord Jesus, I believe you can cause me to live the way I'm supposed to live. I believe you'll do it. Jesus, do it. You then act in obedience to His Word, believing that God's going to make it happen. And folks, take it from someone that for many, many years as a Christian has tried to get better. When I stopped trying to get better, I started to get better. When I realized that it was no longer me trying to make the changes or trying to be more obedient, but it was me just believing that God was going to do it, and He did. That heart that He had given me, I finally started to experience. That new joy that, that I, I, I ran into somebody that hadn't heard me preach in a long time. They came up afterwards and they said, what happened to you? It wasn't that I got saved all of a sudden. I had been saved. But I started to understand how this salvation thing actually works out in me. I'm to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But the next verse is where it says God's the one who's going to give me the desire and He's going to do it. I'm to take serious what it is He's given me, but I activate it by faith. Listen, people have always had good intentions, but have never been able on their own to carry them out. Right? Let me, I'm going to give you the most perfect and almost comical example of this. Go to, go to Exodus 24. Alright, this is the Old Covenant. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 7. And you're going to find yourself chuckling a little bit when you read this, because you know what happened next. Ezekiel, I'm sorry, not Ezekiel. Exodus 24, look at verses 1 through 7. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may, may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Look at what they said. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. How'd that work out for them? Did they mean it? To the best of their ability, they did. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Haven't you said the same thing? Oh God, I'm going to do better. Let me say it again. People have always had good intentions, but have never been able to carry them out. What was needed was not a new or better law, but a new nature or a new heart within us. The new covenant was new, a new one and that it could impart this new heart. You see, the old covenant, what was wrong with the old covenant? Us. Man, God said, if you will, I will. God kept his end of the bargain. Man never kept their end of the bargain. But God knew that. And all along, he had the plan of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Before the creation of the world, it was. But God's new covenant, the better promises are, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. I will move you to obey these things. The old covenant was, you got to do it, and then I'll keep, 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 uh, do my part. And the new covenant is, you don't have to do it. I will. Wow. The sad thing is, most Christians today still don't understand the promises of the new covenant. This new and better covenant we've been given. The problem is, we know what the Word says, but we don't know the one who authored the words. That's true. That's why, as you were saying, Allison, it's a relation thing, not a religion thing. It's the heart of the issue. But here's the thing, folks. Don't go out of here and rededicate yourself. We have been rededicating the flesh all these years in our churches. I don't care how much you supercharge the flesh. It's still going to be flesh. But you already have within you God Himself who will do these things. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as it talks about all these things that we're to do, it finishes around verse 24 by saying this, The one who called you is faithful, and he will do it. Now to him who is able, Jude, for chapter 1, there is no other chapter, Jude, verse 23 and 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before his presence without spot or blemish, and with great joy, to him be the glory forever and ever. Folks, we have been told in our churches to believe in Jesus, dying for our sins, that we can't save ourselves, but only God can do it. Thank God he gives us salvation by grace. Now go be a good Christian. The new covenant is, you still can't do it, but I will. And you have to believe it by faith. And when you believe it by faith, and you rest and yield in Me, and you trust in My Spirit within you, and you walk in obedience believing that I'm going to do it, He does. That's why, like you've heard me say before, when those uh, Amish families had all their children killed, and they poured out grace of God to them, people said, I could never do that. And I say, neither could they. Jesus did it. But so often we still think God's up there waiting on us. Don't put the veil back, folks. Don't put the veil back. 
You've been opened into a new relationship. And here's what I want you to hear. Listen. It was not in regard to its substance that made this covenant new. I'm going to say that again. It was not the substance that is new in this covenant. The substance, and I'm going to show you, and we're going to wrap up with this, the substance has always been the same. And when you see what the substance of the old covenant was and the new covenant is, you're going to want to shout. This is what the substance of the old covenant was. I'm going to prove it to you scripturally, and I'll show it to you the new covenant as well. Here's the substance of the, new co- of the old covenant and the new. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The relationship. That has always been God's plan. Let me show you. Um, We already saw in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Look at verse 7. This is when He's delivering them from where? Anybody know? In e- they're still in slavery in Egypt, and he's calling them out. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Alright? Go to Leviticus chapter 26. It's the next book of the Bible. Leviticus 26, verses 9 through 12. Who'd ever thought that this wonderful substance of I'll be their God, that my people was in Leviticus? Chapter 26, verses 9 through 12. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I'll put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. By the way, this is part of the old covenant promises. He's saying, if you do your end of the bargain, I'm going to bless you like this. How'd they do? They didn't do it. Their intentions were good, but the flesh, they weren't able to keep it. But look at what God said in the Old Covenant. I'll walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 16. In this whole section of don't be yoked with unbelievers, he says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. One last one. Revelation chapter 21. And this is the best one. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Because at this point, we won't have this stinking flesh anymore to fight against the new covenant. That's why Paul said, things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on right after that to say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's no condemnation. Listen to what he says here in Revelation 21, though, verses 1-7. through Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. Folks, from the beginning, the old covenant, if you look at it as a legal document, if you, then I, sign on the dotted line, you miss the substance of it. All along it was, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. I want to be a relationship. in a relationship. The new covenant in the substance is the same thing. The difference between the old and the new, in the old covenant, it was up to us to keep our end of the bargain. Or, who, or in the Jews and us as well. In the New Covenant, God says He will do that part for us. Thank God He does and has. And so I say to each one of you who have been born again and are in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ, this has been promised for the nation of Israel. It was very clear, was it not, that the New Covenant was made for Israel? We have been blessed to be grafted in for a time. Romans 11 says, don't become conceited when you look at the Jews and think we got it and they don't. It is by God's grace that you've been given this covenant. And pray for the nation of Israel. Because all the prophecies about what's going to happen to them in the last days are happening in front of our eyes. Pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who are going through struggles right now because of their faith in Jesus Christ, especially in the Middle East. But don't just pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for the apple of God's eye, the nation of Israel, whom He is going to give this new covenant to one day as well. And while you're at it, why don't you enjoy the benefits of it? Let Him work His life in you and stop trying to do it for Him. Let me pray for us. Wow, Father, again, I'm just always amazed at how fast the hour goes. But thank You for what You've shown us today. Thank You for the fact that as the Hebrew writer is beginning to now even more talk about the greatness and the superiority of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole book has been about we now see that the new covenant in His blood is far better. Because what the old covenant could not do, and the law could not do because it was weakened by our flesh, You did. When You offered Yourself. Father, as we talked just briefly a little bit tonight about the fact that it is most likely that the Jews put the veil back up or stitched it back up after You tore it. We do the same thing on a regular basis when we try to earn your approval and your favor through law, through good works, instead of just trusting and accepting by faith that we are righteous in you. Oh Lord, there are some things you desire of us, but you want it to come out of faith in the the fact that you're going to do it through us. And so Lord, some of us are dealing with some issues right now, maybe issues of forgiveness, issues of patience, issues of joy, issues of self-control, all these evidences, the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, may we not go home tonight and say, I'm going to do a better job in these areas. May we say, Lord, I can't do this, but you said you would. And I believe that you will, and I ask you to live your life through me in such a way in this area of self-control, in this area of forgiveness, in this area of peace or joy. 
Father, may we stop trying to do by the old covenant what you have made possible that you would do through the new covenant. We read how you're going to put your spirit in the nation of Israel. You're going to put a new heart within them. And you're going to cause them to obey you and to follow you. And then we realize those same promises are already ours because of this new covenant. Lord, may we believe that for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.